everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Recorded live. Good evening. This is our back-to-school author meet-and-greet sponsored by BlackParentConnect.com and hosted by HBCUKids.com. And I am very excited. I'm your host for HBCU Kids Incorporated, Joan Gosier. And you are joining us for our first meet-and-greet of the back-to-school year for 2017-2018. Today is Tuesday, September 19th. And we have two outstanding featured authors who will share their inspiration. They will share their perspective on this, what I'm calling a new evolution of literary delights for our children and our families, um, particularly those in society that could benefit from having positive self-esteem, positive messages, and imagery in what they read. And then we'll give you an opportunity to actually hear from the authors in terms of their books and offerings that you can then find at www.blackparentconnect.com and you just click on the image of their um, picture or their link and it will take you right to the store and you'll be able to browse their products and prayerfully support them and help keep things going through their pipeline so they have more and more creative products in the future. This is the time to really start looking at these products. I call them products because books are something that people need to start using more for Christmas gifts and birthday gifts than what I'm hearing and seeing. Uh, There's one time I was talking to someone and a member of their family threatened a child that if they didn't, um, they'd give them money and they didn't get a thank you note. And they said, if um, you do this to me again, next time I'm going to get you some books for Christmas. And I, I said to the person, you know, that's a very interesting punishment that you posed that because you didn't do this, I'm going to give you books as a gift. And I said, when you think about that, that's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad analogy for you to use a book as a punishment. And they hadn't really thought about it. You know, they were like, it, it was just an expression, you know, to, uh, you know, like say that you're going to give somebody rocks or was it coals in, the, in your stockings, that that's what books represented. And I think that this is the year it's among all years to break that cycle of thinking that books are only for libraries or books are only for school. Books need to be gifts. So that being said, um, I'd like to introduce our first author um, of the evening, Mr. Earl Mathis, who is an author and also entrepreneur. So, Mr. Earl Mathis, would you mind telling the audience, um, you know, where are you from and what 
um, inspired you to take this journey of becoming an author? Thank you, Joan, for having me on the program. Um, as she indicated, my name is Earl Mathis. And um, I came to being an author sort of a long journey. Um, let me start by telling the audience a little bit about myself. Uh, I was born and raised in North Carolina, um, had a southern farm experience uh, growing up on a tobacco farm in a little town called Clarkton, North Carolina, which is roughly in the southeastern corner of the state, not far from Wilmington, uh, Fayetteville, in that general vicinity. Uh, growing up in that experience and, and, and really growing up in the 60s, um, I had an opportunity to experience a culture where people still valued uh, conversation, they valued t- storytelling, they valued uh, you know the relationships between families and communities. So it was a very strong community-based environment uh, where you know in the days where your your parents were not just the people who raised you, but you know the, the lady down the street or the, the, or the gentleman. Uh, down the road from you, your neighbors, they all took a hand in, in helping to raise you. And with that, I was always enchanted with the stories that people would tell, whether it was a, a, a scary story about some ghost or, or a hat, as people would call it in the country, uh, or the story about someone who uh, mysteriously disappeared and, and was never seen and the family had to go on without them, or, you know, there was just a whole range of, of stories that people would tell uh, about heroic activities in the community, how people came together to to all contribute a pine tree to help build the local community schoolhouse where I went to school. Uh, so there was a rich, rich legacy of storytelling, uh, both scary and, and, and informative, and, and some of it was just straight out, you know, people just making up stories. So that was part of my upbringing uh, and also growing up on a farm. Uh, I came to appreciate nature, animals, and, and and all kinds of experiences. I mean, we had horses, we had mules, we had, you know, the whole range of animals, chicken, cows, pigs, you name it. And so all of that was a part of my upbringing. And, of course, the day came when I left that cocoon of existence and moved into the real world, as they say. Went to college, I became an engineer, uh, you know, went to work for a company called IBM for a number of years, and and doing things and, and being around people who had really no, had, did not have the same foundation of, of an upbringing that I had. Um, so it was, it was kind of like a part of me that I couldn't really express fully uh, for fear of ridicule, you might say. Uh, people saying, you, you, you did what? You, you, <laughs> you rode pigs as a child? That was your, <laughs> we never heard of that, you know. So, so that, that part of me sort of was, Put on the shelf, and and a lot of people didn't know about that part of me. You know, they just knew where you went to school, at, at, where I attended school at North Carolina A&T, and then later I went to grad school at Stanford. So they all thought, you know, I'm just a you know middle class kid, uh, you know, who came from a different experience. Um, and it was many years later, I guess, when I married and had children, that I began to think about my children and, and what kind of life they would have one day. And, and I began to reflect back on my own. And, and I began to say to myself, I said, you know, my kids are going to have a very different life than me. Um, but there are certain values, there are certain experiences that I had growing up, uh, certain moral lessons that I learned that I want to try to impart to them. 
but I certainly didn't want to try to do it in a manner that would turn them off and bore them and have them rolling their eyes and going, oh, no, here comes another one of those log cabin stories. So what I did was I said, how can I communicate with them in a way that would make them intrigued or, or listen? And that's when I had the ideal of telling them stories. So I just one day picked up my daughter's guitar and, and banged on her old drums, and, the, and I gave out a call, and I, I said, this is the story of, of uh, Seymour, King of the Ants. And my daughters came closer, and, and they began to say, okay, what's next, Daddy? Will you have our attention now. And, and that led me to sort of just spinning a yarn and, and, and telling a story, and, and it came from a place that I, at that moment, didn't know where it was coming from, but the stories came through me and probably were deposited in me from my experiences growing up. Uh, but I just began telling them stories, and that ritual was repeated at the dinner table over and over again where I would ask them to pick an animal, each one would pick an animal. And from there, I would begin to take each of those animals and, and weave a story that was intended to entertain them, to you know, can inspire their imaginations and also to to just impart some lesson to them, some moral lessons. And so that's what led me to becoming a writer. Uh, and my intent was never to be a children's writer. Uh, I had the notion of one day being an author of a, of a great American novel, you might say. And um, But it came in this way. It manifested out of me in the form of a children's book called Table Fables. So that's how I became to be a writer, and uh, kind of a long way of getting it out. But that's that's what what led me to this moment today. Wow, that is a fascinating journey, um, and it's it's I would say it's not unheard of. But the richness of all the things that you had with your education and your corporate experience and your work. And then to be able to sit back and distill all that with connecting your roots on the farm and then at the same time, you know, knowing that you've got to engage the kids because if you don't, you know, and I, and I can't take any credit for your success, but I will say that I think I warned you what the experience I had with my kids. <laughs> And that the book that I wrote, they still have yet to read. I wrote it for them, but it's not written the way they wanted it written. And so, um, I but I did have a chance through the grace of God by having another baby because then I could start her off at birth reading the book. So she loves the book because she doesn't know not to love the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad your children um, we're able to, to get a product out that you can actually have them enjoy. That's a blessing. It, it was a wonderful experience because uh, they were witnesses from the very beginning of the process. Mm-hmm. Stories were created on the spot to seeing me eventually write them down uh, at the urging of my wife. And, and then seeing them, you know, I self-published the book, so they saw me going through the process working with an illustrator, and I showed them samples of the artwork as we went through the process. And and then one day they see the book show up, and they're going, wow, you really did it, Daddy. You published a book. So they were, even though they were participating in every step of, the, of that journey with me, 
seeing it manifest and seeing the actual physical, tangible book held in their hands, the hardcover that they could flip through and look at it, it took on a whole different meaning to them. They were like, wow, you know, this is this was like concept, and now we have a finished product. And they're, you know, of course, very proud of me, and I'm very pleased that they experienced that with me to, to see that process because part of my goal was to instill in them, in them uh, an attitude that, hey, whatever you conceive, you can make come through. And so I was thrilled that they had an opportunity to, to witness that entire process with me. And, and, of course, now they know what's possible because they see, wow, this, I was there when this was just a story, and now I see the actual book. So, so that, that's one of the most rewarding things out of this process for me. And how old are your children? Um, they're right now nine and a half and 12. Uh, when I started telling them these stories, they were probably four, four, six and a half. Uh, so over a period of four or five years, you know, they heard probably in the neighborhood of, uh, I'd say, 50 to 60 um, stories that I would tell over, over and over again at the dinner table. Uh, and pardon my phone in the background. Um, oh, that's okay. But they would they would uh, you know participate in the telling of the stories and and uh, the book itself is a collection of eight of those stories uh, that I have you know told over the years. And I have to admit, many of the stories I have forgotten <laughs> as I try to remember them. Uh, because they were sort of spontaneously created on the spot. Uh, but there were many that I have written down and have yet to publish, so I'm excited to see where that will go. Well, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and Mr. Dexter Humphrey, um, can you share with the audience, especially those that are listening um, later to the recording, what inspired you to start this journey, and how did you find your way into the children's genre? Okay. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Uh, my name is Dexter Humphrey. Uh, I am the CEO of JASA Leadership Group, which is an educational resource firm that specializes in developing products, strategies, and initiatives for parents, students, and academic leaders. My journey started... Uh, with writing while I was studying for my second master's at the uh, Interdenominational Theological Center here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we had to do a project in one of my philosophy class, classes, and uh, we chose a prison industrial complex. And so as I'm doing research with my team, I began to see a stark uh, correlation between the prison population and illiteracy. And so these numbers uh, started jumping out at me when I saw, because I'm also, I'm an engineer. Uh, my first degree is from Louisiana State University. I have a degree in electrical engineering off of LSU, so I'm a math guy. I love numbers. So when I started seeing that 85% of juvenile offenders are functionally illiterate, and then 70% or as high as 75% of all state prisoners uh, nationwide are either high school dropouts or illiterate, and then you drop down to the babies, the correlation, well, 66% of Georgia students I know uh, by the end of the third grade, are not reading on grade level. Only 34% are. And when you look at 80% of low-income kids uh, that are not reading correctly or reading on grade level by third grade, the numbers start to match up. So I'm like, okay, 85% juvenile illiterate, 75% state prisoners illiterate, third graders not reading on grade level, 
80% of our kids are, are what they call in Title I schools where 90% of the students are on free or reduced lunch. So poverty and illiteracy go hand in hand. So the light came on. Why don't we do something to get our kids reading? And, of course, my old adage is if you wait till a kid gets in high school or middle school, it's almost too late. The die has already been cast. So you have to look at the foundation or the root of a thing. So, of course, that pushed me back to babies. Growing up, I didn't like little kids. I normally dealt with middle school, high school, and college students. Those uh, pre or early learners or pre-K kids, and uh, I couldn't deal with them. But a grace uh, from God came upon me while I was studying to start at the foundation root level. We have to get the babies before they get to kindergarten because 85% of a child's brain is developed by the time they're five years old. So if you wait until your child goes to kindergarten to start exposing them to the alphabet, exposing them to books, you're already putting your child at a disadvantage. So I start writing books. Um, I rewrote the uh, alphabet song. Um, I have my own alphabet curric curriculum called Learning My ABCs with Jumper Jimmy, and Jumper Jimmy is my um, kangaroo cartoon character. He's something like my hype man, what I call, like my uh, Ronald McDonald, my Dora Explorer, my Nemo. Uh, he's the character I use to pretty much get kids excited about learning. And so as I continue my research, we found out that 53% of all incoming kindergartners can't write their own name. 76% of all incoming kindergartners have no idea of what a book is. So what, wait, wait, wait. What percent were those two? I'm going to write those okay. down. Hold on. And this is from the uh, United Way and the Rand Institute. I can actually send you the, uh, the uh, sources. 53% of all incoming kindergartners, and there are roughly 5 million kids every year, pre-K, that go to kindergarten every year, 53% of those, almost over half, cannot write their own name. And then a whopping 76% of all incoming kindergartners have no knowledge or idea of what a book is. They've never seen a book before. You what? can't put that. Yes, you can. Yeah, that's that's a, a fact. Blew me away. So you can't put your child's deficiency educationally on the teacher. Here's another alarming stat. During the course of a school year, they're roughly 8,700 $8, in a year, 8,760. A child spends 7,800 hours a year with their parent and only a measly 900 hours with their teacher. There's almost seven to one a child spending more time with their parent. You, the teachers cannot be held most accountable for a kid's failure in the classroom. The, the parent has got to take a stronger role in educating and preparing their child. And so that's what led me to writing children's books. So I have, I'm trying to get that kid from age zero to age five before they go to the school system that they're already either on grade level or above par. They know their phonics, they know their alphabet, sight, color, numbers, all this stuff can be taught at home. And I try to tell my parents, you don't need a PhD to teach your kid how to say the alphabet. Everybody knows the alphabet songs. Everybody knows the sounds each letter makes. You know how to count to 10. So you can teach these things uh, with your child and, of course, you mentioned earlier, why not advocate Mark Twain and, you know, Charles Oh, no, Dickens we haven't gotten there yet. Oh, no, okay. we haven't gotten yeah. there yet. We haven't gotten there yet. I want to ask you another question about um, your motivation. Do you have children? Yes, I have one son. He is, uh, he will be one, actually, uh, next oh. month. And he currently knows uh, parts of the alphabet. He knows parts of the face. And actually, it's, I have video of this on my Instagram page where at four months, he's identifying parts of my face at four months. He's able, wow. uh, I just got a video uh, 
recently of him flipping through a page of one of my books and literally had the book up. Now he's in uh, 11 months. He's sitting upright, has a book upright, and he's flipping through pages in the book before mm-hmm. he's one. And so because a kid at that age, we talked about the development of a child's brain, they're, so, they're like sponges. So uh, my child's mom and I, both are, I, have, I have two master's degrees. She has a master's degree. So we model education in front of him. You know, so all of my products, I have posters, flashcards, books. He has uh, been exposed to all of that stuff. And so. But now let me ask you this. You Mm -hmm. were doing this before he arrived, though, correct? Yeah, we were actually reading my my book, The Amazing Adventures of Jumpin' Jimmy. We were reading to him in the womb. That was the first book I was adamant about. Your inspiration, did your inspiration start when you all found out that your wife was pregnant? No, I was born. He was born. He was born last year. Uh, my inspiration to start writing was in 2015 when I um, published my first book, The Amazing Adventures of Jumpin' Jimmy, and my um, alphabet curriculum. So, yeah, it was before he was born. And okay, so, that's uh, what I was getting yeah. at. This, this, mm-hmm. The seed was planted in your heart. As you said, the Spirit of God told you to get this all in order before yes. he was even conceived. Right. And so, But when he came here, he was my first Test subject, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it has to begin home. So why tell other parents about what they just do with their children? And I'm not doing it with mine. So of course, everything was in place when he got here. And so I have mm-hmm. uh, currently, I currently authored over 40 books. Uh, about 80% of them are for early learners. Um, I do have some books that are for middle school, high school, and college students. But primarily, um, these four million babies that are born every year in this country, I'm trying to get our parents to get their kids ready to get into the school system to escape you know, being a failure, ended up in poverty, ended up on welfare, or ended up in prison simply because a child cannot survive and compete uh, educationally because they have not been given the tools uh, from their parents. So let me get this straight. You have 40 or did you say 80? Over, over 40 books. Probably the number is probably 45. I'm actually working on book number 46, and I've published 16 of them. I'm writing them faster than I can publish them. Uh, I am self-published. My only holdup is finding uh, competent illustrators uh, because I'm very anal attentive when it comes to storyboarding my books. I want, because when I write it, I can see the uh, whole image. I can see everything. So um, I want to make sure that everything is right. So I have, uh, like I said, about, about 30 or so manuscripts that are, you know, in my computer, in the cloud, because I want to make sure I don't lose them. But I, I, I physically have 16 books or so published. Okay, so you have 40 books that you've actually created, but it's 16 mm. that people will be able to actually find if they weren't looking for them. Yes, that is correct. Okay. See, that's what you always threw me off because I'd always be trying to find these 40, and I'd always count the 16. So that's yeah. the difference. You've got them. They're ready to go, but we've got to find you a decent graphic illustrator correct. for those other uh, 34, 24, or birth. Yes. Gotcha. That makes sense. Okay. Now we're transitioning. We're a little bit behind schedule, but we're going to catch up. I want to transition to the quick discussion on what's changed that now there seems to either be more demand or more supply and availability of more diverse books and stories. Um, you know, growing up, I can remember C. Dick Run, Dick and Jane, there was that little Curious George, 
you know, then later on, you know, you got into the Mark Twains, you got into the uh, Charles Dickens, those types of stories. And then Judy Bloom hit the scene, and, and she tapped into for girls. The girls had their own series of books. Um, but now it seems like there are, like, a whole lot more books that are available, more books than ever for our children. And I wonder, is there more reading taking place? Um, and, that, and these children and these families are now saying, hey, we want more books to look and resemble our stories, or is it on the supply side? Are there more authors um, seeing how it's not that difficult to get your own self-publishing book out as opposed to having to get and beg publishers to put your book out? Um, so talk to me from that angle. And this time I'll start with you, Dexter. What do you see? is um, driving, is it the need or is it supply? I think it's the supply. Um, I'm a techie, and the Internet has leveled the playing field. Uh, Bill Gates said it best. He said that, uh, this was back in the 90s. He said if you, in three years, if you're not on the Internet, your business or your company won't exist. So when you look at the uh, proliferation of these apps to where right now, um, primary example, the record, the record industry, you no longer have to go to a, you know, massive studio to record a song. You can record an entire album on a laptop because they have all these different apps, these different software programs that will fit on your computer, and you can pretty much do what you want to do with your project. Similarly with books, uh, when I first started writing, uh, way back in the day, when I tried to, I, I, I wrote, I'm an extensive writer of poetry. Uh, that's my first uh, genre of uh, literature. And so I still have my old query letters. You know, you write, you write your uh, manuscript, you, you give your, get your query letter, you give them three to five samples, and you try to find a poetry publisher. And, of course, I would get all the rejection notices, you know, back in the day. Well, now, due to uh, a plug for CreateSpace through Amazon, I don't have to do that. I don't have to beg permission to print my book. If I get an idea, and I need to learn how to draw because I can get my books out faster. But now that I have this, this technology, I, I mean, writing a book is nothing for me. I can write a book, children's book in a matter of 30 minutes. I mean, full from cover to cover. So now, once I get that going, I don't have to wait on anybody. I.e., well, besides my graphic designer, uh, if a book has no pictures, if it's just you know text for older kids, I can put that book out in a matter of three days, depending on how fast I want to get through it. So there is a greater, I would say, supply than demand because, needless to say, here in Georgia, Georgia has 106 failing elementary schools. Our kids are not reading, so it's not the, it's not the demand; it's the supply. Because right now, through technology, uh, authors or creators now have their own voice, and they are empowered through technology to get their stuff done. So, of course, too, when you're able to do your own thing, like, you know, uh, myself and Miss um, uh, Earl there, we're able to push, push our own books. So I don't have to wait on anybody. If I come up with the ideal, all of us have access to pretty much a laptop, Microsoft Word and so forth, uh, Google Docs. Uh, if you don't have a laptop, you can go to the library where there are free computers. And you can pretty much write your own story and, and put it together yourself. So I think the proliferation of technology with the passion to see something, uh, as Earl mentioned earlier, something that you uh, conceive brought to fruition of your own power and your own passion and your own push. That's what I think uh, speaks to the uh, great abundance of more authors and more products because now the little guy now has a voice. We don't need Random House to approve us and you know and of course when you're self-published you keep most of the money too so mm -hmm. uh 
So that's pretty much I would say it's the supply of authors and creators and uh, thinkers uh, that is, has increased with, along with the uh, empowerment through technology to get your product out in front of people that has uh, created such a diversity um, with uh, educational products. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was very um, spot on for what my observation has been. Um, Mr. Earl, what's your perspective on that? I, I would tend to agree with, with what um, he said. Um, I, I think there may also be a situation where you have people and families who already are readers, uh, who, who who understand the value of that reading early and, and the education around it, or who are now a, having an opportunity to diversify their taste. Uh, and, and that may be in part helping the demand for authors like ourselves, uh, where they before had to read only books that were written uh, through someone else's uh, narrative, uh, you know, white authors who wrote books that were meant for the, the, the masses. Uh, now they have an opportunity to, to diversify, you know, their portfolio. They have an opportunity to get books written from a black narrative, from the black experience, or from people who just have a different perspective, whether it be black, Asian, or whatever group. I think now they have more choices, and because of the number of authors who are able to get their voices out there and get it heard. Um, and so that's a good thing. So now a parent who would normally go by, you know, back in my day, see Jack, see Jack and Dick Run and Sally, now they have an opportunity to read about a young girl growing up in Nairobi, uh, Kenya. They have an opportunity to read about uh, someone who's growing up in, in the South or in the Northeast or in California, someone who who happens to be African-American, who looks like them. So, so I think the, 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 the plate has got a lot more to choose. Uh, now, the number of readers, uh, is it increasing? Uh, I can't speak to that, but, but I certainly can say that we have more choices, uh, and, and that's a good thing. Yes, I totally agree. Um, I really want us who are listening to this call and and what I tell people when I give them a flyer, I actually print out this flyer for the JPEG that's on Facebook. I actually print it out and I, I put it directly in people's hands. And I get like a variety of responses. You know, well, my children are grown, you know, and I said, um, it's for all ages. You you have grandchildren, correct? Yeah, but they don't live anywhere near here. It's a teleconference. And guess what? They can participate and listen from anywhere in the world that they can dial this number. And it just blows their minds. So, you know, talking about the speed of technology, that it's not just going to the library, sitting and listening to an author. You can actually chat with these authors on your phone from the convenience of your home um, and learn more about what's behind the cover. And I was giving this analogy to someone uh, that were talking about. Uh, Steve Bannon, I think, was going to speak at a black entrepreneurship conference or something. And this person was screaming that, you know, you should at least listen. You know, go listen to him. You know, he's a millionaire, so he could help the black community learn more about money. Um, And my analogy was, you know, that's like, I don't believe you should judge the book by the cover, but I believe that if you study the author 
and you learn a little bit about the author and, and what their motivation is and what they've been exposed to and where they're coming from, you can decide pretty much, This call me ignorant, but this is my thought. If I've read the author's bio and I've done a little bit of study about the author and I've seen and heard the author, I probably don't need to read the book um, unless it's somebody else that tells me, oh, you can't judge the author because this book is totally different than, you know, anything you would have thought came from that person. But that gives you a little bit more than what you would see sitting on a shelf. If you just looked at the cover and you just looked at the size of the book, you don't really know the content of it. I say that about that man. I'm like, I know enough about his background here in Virginia that I don't need to pay money at a conference on entrepreneurship and hear from him. And that's why I always ask when we have our meet and greets, I like for the authors to share their inspiration and where they came from because it really helps put in context what makes that book or series of books so different and so unique versus just judging the cover. So I I so appreciate you all sharing that, and I hope that our authors can appreciate, I mean authors, I hope our listening audience can appreciate what we've heard from our authors so far. So now in a few minutes, I'd like um, each of you to pick, you know, one or two of your favorite passages from your product, your book, and, you know, let's pretend that, Listening to this recorded um, line will be someone from that target audience that you're trying to reach for your book. How would you engage them? What would you say? Which, what would you pick out of your product that would make them um, want to go and learn more about how to get it in their own home? And so, Earl, I'll let you start off. Okay, well, uh, let me delve a little deeper into the book itself. Um, as I said earlier, the stories were inspired around the dinner table uh, with my daughters. Um, each of the stories, and there are eight that are included in the book, it's really like eight books in one book. Um, each of them um, have a moral lesson, a moral story. Uh, one of the things I did, and I didn't mention it earlier, is that um, in addition to writing these stories, I went back and, and I sort of incorporated some symbolism that accompanies each story. Uh, for example, I use the Adinkra uh, symbols, such as the Sankofa bird and several other symbols that correspond to a moral lesson or a moral uh, teaching, uh, sort of like a proverb. And this comes from the West African culture of the Ashanti and the, the Guaman culture. Of, of, of And so what I wanted to do was to incorporate a symbol that would go with each story and, and sort of to introduce to a number of readers who may not have that appreciation and of that storytelling is, is, is old as time itself. And and there's a rich legacy of storytelling that, that goes all the way back to ancient Africa and modern Africa on into America. So I wanted to create that, that linkage or that connection back. Um, so each of the stories, um, you know, have a different symbol. And, and if I could, I'd just like to just maybe give you a title of each of the stories, give okay. a little bit of, about what they're about, and, and talk about some of the symbolism. Uh, the first story um, is called Bukosi, King of the Ants. Now, I changed the name. I like that one. <laughs> from Seymour. Originally, it was Seymour, King of the Ants. But later, I went back and I said, well, this takes place in the African savanna, 
And so all of the characters need to have an African name that has a meaning associated with it. And so that's why I, I chose the name Bukosi, which is a name that symbolizes strength and leadership. And the, the symbol that goes with that story is Adinkrahini, which means greatness, leadership, a self-belief, and a faith in oneself. Uh, the second story is one that has become a favorite with my wife and, and my daughters. I like that one, too. It's called The Porcupine That Loved Hugs. And that symbolizes uh, a story that deals with friendship, love, safety, and security. And the symbol there is called Iban, E-B-A-N. The third story is The Most Beautiful Bird. That deals with humility, service, and someone who's not proud or boastful. Uh, and then we get into the fourth story. It's called A New Animal Joins the Farm. And that's a story that deals with, and all of these stories, by the way, are animal-based characters, uh, but you can begin to see the human aspect in each of these characters. Uh, this story deals with cautioning against creating strife and disharmony. And the fifth story is called The Corn Stealer. I use the word corn stealer instead of corn thief because sometimes people in the South sort of speak that way. We don't say the, the, the necessarily the, the correct or proper word thief. We say stealer. You know? <laughs> and uh, so that story, again, deals with uh, ingenuity, cooperation, and basically helping me to help you. Uh, the sixth story is called The Mule and the Tick, and that's a story of ingenuity. The seventh story is called The Squirrel's Feast, and that's a story that models friendship, showing how we need to be steadfast and ready and, and consistent in our behavior, which is a, a, a one of the true marks of friendship. And finally, the eighth story is called The Bullfrog's Songs. It deals with friendship and interdependence and also understanding that diversity is an important component of our survival. You can't just have everyone behaving one way. We we need to cherish that diversity and the differences that we have, which also reflects the things that we really have in common. So those are the eight stories that that the book in, is um, covers, and uh, um, I've done several readings for some schools in the nearby area, and 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 they're always. Uh, in, very engaged and excited to hear uh, the stories, and and I think they get an extra sense of appreciation when they realize that there's a deeper historical aspect to it, and that the stories really come from a place that they know little of. And when I talk about Africa and West Africa and how that makes a connection <coughs> to the tradition of, of wisdom teaching and storytelling. Uh, you know, their eyes just get wide and bright. They're just so excited to, to know. And they look at me, and, and I when I tell stories, I, of course, make use of the different voices of the animals and, and really try to make them come alive. And so... Well, I, I'm sorry, I know you probably pick one that you like, but would you mind doing the bullfrog songs? Because I thought about the sounds. <laughs> well, not the entire story, just, just parts of it. Huh? Well, yeah, let's do page 87. Page 87, okay. The Bullfrog Songs. In the middle of the woods, there was a small pond where each evening, Benny, the bullfrog, happily sang his song. He would clear his throat and belt out his song in a deep voice. Burp, burp. The sound was thick, 
sweet to the ears of the frog, but it was not welcome to one not a welcome one to the other animals. But each evening the animals had to endure the repeated boop boop when they went to sleep. <laughs> Keep going. Okay. <laughs> the bullfrog songs went on night after night until one day all the animals except the frogs had a meeting to discuss this bullfrog singing. The deer, squirrels, rabbits, beavers, birds, foxes, and mice all agreed something had to be done to silence the bullfrogs. They decided that one of them would convince the bullfrog, bullfrog to change his song to something that would be more pleasant to sleep by. But who would go? So they each wrote their names on a pebble and placed each pebble in a hollow stump. The name chosen would have to meet the challenge. The rabbit, being the eldest, reached into the stump to select the pebble. The pebble chosen belonged to Tony the mouse. All the animals turned to Tony and said, Now, make the bullfrog stop. That evening, Tony went to see Benny the bullfrog. Benny was sitting on his favorite lily pad, preparing to perform his evening serenade, when Tony said, Hello, my name is Tony. Startled, Benny said, Hello, um, my name is Benny. Did you come to hear me sing my song? Tony said to Benny, You know, Benny, we animals love your voice, but we thought that maybe you could sing a different song. I love it. Because <laughs> right there you got that sound in the beginning. You know, you get the kids, especially like a four-year-old, attention and you know, having the animals talking and having a conversation. You know, a lot of kids haven't grown up with African fables, so it's kind of it's a refreshing modernization of, uh, you know, some fresh new stories. But um, I love the fact that in your book, and I'm going to write your um, formal review, I love the fact that it's eight solid stories. Because, you know, a lot of times they're like a whole bunch of little bitty stories. Right. And, um, and and that's one of the things I liked about, say, Dr. Carter G. Woodson's African Myths and Tables, Fables book. But there's so many, you really can't remember all the ones that you read. But these eight you kind of are grounded with, and you know that you read them because you can remember the characters, you can remember the images. And um, I just I think it's in its hardcover, so it's a really neat little table fable book. And um, how could someone get one of your books? Well, they can uh, visit our website. Uh, it's www.earlmathis, one word, dot com, or www.thetablefables.com. And, and okay. I believe you mentioned there was a link also on your website. Yes, we're going to be having a week a link after this conference once it's published, this uh, audio. And it will be linked to the book on www.blackparentconnect.com, which is our family's resource store. So thank you for that. Great. And, Mr. Humphrey, you have a hard job to do because you've got to find out of all the different things that you have, which one is your favorite? Um. Uh... The main book that's my favorite that uh, kind of in, uh, encapsulates everything that I'm trying to do is I'm on a mission to get our students and our parents, our black students and parents, to educate themselves and to educate themselves for the specific purpose of starting their own business. So I'm no longer a double E uh, electrical engineering major or, or, or worker. I'm a double E, I'm an educational entrepreneur. 
And so the main book that I really, really focus on and that I could talk to a pre-K student all the way up to an elderly person, and it's a book entitled The 13 Laws of Sex of the Educator, Principles for Purpose and Success. And so when I get your student reading, knowing their alphabet, knowing their phonics, being able to write complete sentences, uh, having their critical thinking skills uh, enlightened, uh, being able to see a different worldview as a result of reading, I now challenge them to tap into their purpose, to tap into their passion, and create your own business. Because at the end of the day, black people are the uh, last ones hired for the most part and the first ones fired. As uh, Dr. Claude Anderson says, that uh, the black American is becoming a permanent underclass. We have the highest rates of uh, HIV. We have the highest rates of unemployment. We have the highest rates of incarceration. We have the highest rates of uh, health problems. All across the board, uh, we're just labeled as being the worst. And so I think it's time that we start looking within ourselves uh, to improve ourselves. And of course, that's going to start with education, and it's going to start with starting our own business. So uh, similar to what uh, Mr. Earl talked about, the uh, West African uh, proper concept or principal concept of learning, most of my books, because I'm writing them for that parent that doesn't have probably much uh, high school, I mean, college uh, training or doesn't have a master's degree, may have some high school, but these books that I write are very basic and fundamental for them to be able to read and use those concepts to uh, empower themselves. So one of the books, My 13 Laws, uh, basically people ask me all the time, Dexter, how do you go from being, uh, I, I battle homelessness, I battle uh, a lot of personal adversities, but I went from being homeless to having Walmart, Chick-fil-A, Publix as clients. And people ask me all the time, how did you do, how did you do that? So I came up with these 13 laws that I use uh, as principles um, to galvanize and strengthen myself and get myself uh, back on par and to operate in excellence. And so some of the laws, I'll tell you some of the chapters. And the book is very small. It's about 60 pages. Uh, I, I try to keep it very simple to where I will keep the principle to about one or two pages. And I'll have, it's an activity book. So re- re- really, this book is designed to be practiced rather than read. Uh, some of the uh, titles of the chapter is The Law of Knowing Thyself, The Law of Education, The Law of Networking, The Law of Money, The Law of Healthy Living, The Law of Knowing Your Place, The Law of the Work Ethic, The Law of Team Building, The Law of Serving, The Law of Failing Your Way to Success, The Law of Suffering and Adversity, The Law of No, N-O, and The Law of Belief. And so one of my favorite chapters uh, in this book, or actually two, is the law of education and the law of serving. Uh, Jesus said it best. He said that the Son of Man did not come, this is our belief, uh, Matthew 20, 22, did not come to be served, but he came to serve. And if you want to be the greatest person in any organization, in any uh, job, you have to take on the mind of a servant, a helper. Uh, Bill Gates is one of the richest men on the planet because he serves more people. There are more people operating uh, Microsoft software than any other software on the planet. And so I tell all my students, once you get your education, once you find out what you're passionate about and you want to pursue that business, the first thing you need to do is serve somebody else. If you want something to happen for yourself, make something happen for somebody else. So that's the law of serving, the law of humility. Um, also, too, I uh, talked about the law of education. To be is to study. What you study, you will become. 
if you want a job, if you want a career, if you want to be of anything of, of significance in this world, you have to learn a skill. Nobody's going to pay you just because you're a person or because you're black, because you're white or Latino. No, what can you do? So you're, you should educate yourself always based upon your purpose. And once you do that, you pursue your passion with your purpose, you'll never work a day in your life. And so my 13 laws, but actually there's a sequel to this. I have 13 more laws. Uh, but yeah, the 13 laws is, is uh, all of my books point to this one book. We as black people have, start, have got to start owning our own businesses. We own nothing. Uh, a stat that blew me away when they talk about the post-racial uh, economy, the post-racial society, uh, Dr. Claude Anderson, you can Google him. He's all over the Internet. He has several books. He said this, in 1865, before the Civil War, black people, I think we were four million strong then, um, owned one half of 1% of America's wealth in 1865 before the Civil War. In 2013, I believe the study was done again. To this day, black people still own only one half of 1% of America's wealth. Yes, we have gone from, what was it, uh, 300 billion to now maybe 1.9 trillion in spending economy. But when you're a mathematician, you understand percentages are based upon the whole. So, of course, if America is making more money, yes, you may get a little bit more so-called income, but your percentage stays the same, right? Because you can have, what, 10% of 100 is 10, right? So you have that same type of percentage broken down to another different way. Uh, I believe it's 1,000% or 1% of 1,000 is still 10. So you, don't, you have not really increased your percentage of ownership because our main philosophy is get an education, because I was taught that way and I had to break out of that model. Get an education and go work somebody else. Get an education, go find your job. But that day is kind of over because they're firing people left and right. They're not hiring people. So unless you're able to get some type of skill through your education, as Dr. Paul Edison says, you're going to be cast into a permanent underclass. Nobody will hire you. You'll constantly be on a level of poverty and lack. And so my book, The 13 Laws, tells you once you get that education and once you want to start your own business, these are some of the ingredients that you can use to kind of get you going and get you moving. Okay, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, so each chapter is about how many in your in that book? I mean, the, the, entire book from cover to, the, the entire book is just 60 pages. So each chapter, so, I made sure it was no more than, each principle is no more than one to two pages. It's a six by nine book. It's a very easy read. Like I said, people, I want you to do what's in the book because I have like every, after every chapter, there are activities, there are assignments that you have to go out and literally put into practice the principle you just read. So mm-hmm. I uh, kind of like uh, uh, the educator, the famous educator, uh, Paulo Freire, he said that he disdained the banking system of education where you just public people full of facts, information, and knowledge. But what do you do with that? Okay? So he wanted to get you to where you talked about dialogue education to where you're engaging the student and the student is engaging the teacher and that's what the way learning takes place to where you're not just receiving information, but now you're using wisdom to do something with it, to do something productive. So, like I said, the book uh, is a book within a book because the activity that I have you do cannot be done overnight. It will sometimes take you months or sometimes years to, to master some of the principles in it. But I didn't want to write a book that was 200, 300 pages long because the average person does not read that many books. 
The average person will read, period. I think only 85% of Americans read a book in the last five years. 85% mm. have not read a book, one. They haven't even visited a bookstore. So when you're talking about getting our people to read, um, you know the old adage, you want to hire some, put it in, hire some a black man, put it in a book. That's not just black people. That's for a majority of our human beings. Reading is a, is, a, is, a, is a laborious task, but it's very vital and necessary for the growth and development of any human being. So um, I try to keep it simple um, to make sure that the, the, the things are like smart goals, you know, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely. I try to make sure that my books are like that, very concise to the point. So that parent, that student, uh, that, uh, that uh, seeker of knowledge and truth can get what they need real quick and get to work. Excellent. How can they get your book? Where, where, is, where can they go? How, how can they find you can, it? You can go to my website, which is my name, DexterHumphrey.com. That's H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y. And so, so and also you can go to my children's website, which is JossaLeadership.com. And Jossa is spelled J as in jump, A as in apple, S as in Sam, A as in apple, leadership.com. So DexterHumphrey.com is for, uh, I would say, middle school and up. And Jobs Leadership is for my early learners. And, of course, you can Google me on Amazon. Um, I'm all on the Internet. But it's cheaper to get my books directly from me than going through a middleman or a third buyer. Okay. Now, I want to say something on that note for both of you. Don't tell consumers it's cheaper to get it from you than from Amazon. Uh Tell them it's more convenient, and you can get an autograph if they get it well, from you. Well, I would say this. Well, let me let me let me speak to that. And of course, with Amazon and CreateSpace being self-published, you're allowed to dictate the price of your book to a certain extent. Because once you get to the uh, publishing process, Amazon tells you, okay, uh, if you want to make a royalty, your book has to be a, above a certain price. So, I'll give you a case in point. No, no, no. I, I think, know. I, I'm I'm yeah. just telling you from one offer of way folks think. It marginalized. There are people, believe it or not, and it's, it's, it doesn't make sense, but someone explained it to me, and I can see their logic, okay? There are people who feel that if you're in that bookstore or if you're on Amazon, that it gives us a street cred. It gives a, a cred that, wow, I bought my book from Amazon along with all the other stuff that I got, or I got my book from Walmart. Along with other. They don't really care the fact that you only made 10 cents off of that where <laughs> Amazon have made. You know, they could care less because they're not thinking that way. I'm just saying for us as authors, we you may not realize it, but they some people really actually prefer to pay that fourteen ninety nine because it's the status of, I was in Walmart getting me some milk, and I saw your book on the shelf, and I bought it. That says something to them versus them being able to get it from you for seven, and then you making more than the 10 cents that Walmart's going to pay you. You know, it's a psychology thing that I've just observed, that people value mm-hmm. things that we as authors don't even realize that they're thinking about. Okay. So this is food for thought. But when you say the word cheaper, then it devalues in their mind what the, the the value of what you've put into your work, sweat and tears, your blood, sweat and tears. Well, I would just, just say, been my two cents. I would just say, if you if you're talking about Air Jordans or talking about Sean John, I will give you that credit. But when you're talking about books, it's bad enough that they don't want to read anyway. 
I'm no, not I'm not talking about the non-reader. I'm talking about the ones that Earl was describing earlier, the people that got okay. their little Kindles. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. They they like the prestige of sitting in Starbucks downloading gotcha. okay. your product, you know. Gotcha. But I understand different, you know, different strategies for different tier levels. But mm-hmm. I just don't want anyone to think that your products aren't as valuable as they are. Because if they happen to get it from you and it's a bargain, I don't even use the word bargain. It's lower cost at the time that they could have bought it at Amazon. Fine, but we just don't want them to have that expectation that your books are free because they're not. No, I, well, the way I price my books, whether you get it from me or whether you get it from Amazon, I'm still making good money. So well, good. that's why I, I, I love being self-published. Good. Now, everybody that's listening, please visit. Um, the authors at www.blackparentconnect.com. This replay will be there 24-7 forever. As um, I, I'm just claiming it. It'll be there, The link will be there forever. And you will be able to click and visit the, the author's sites. And I want to thank you, gentlemen, for taking this time out of your busy schedules to provide this for our parents and our families. Um, I've had people go back years later, and I have this one interview that we did with uh, an author. I mean, she was just really wonderful what she had created, and it was a book similar in the genre, you know, trying to to engage. She was a retired teacher, a school teacher, and it was her dream come true. And she passed, you know, she she went on and transitioned, um, you know, to heaven, and it. It just meant a lot for her, you know, family to know that they could come back to BlackParentConnect.com and replay and hear her, you know, her story. And I was just honored that we were able to capture her. And so I'm always looking for um, outstanding authors um, that people don't know yet, but particularly those that are parents and people that want to connect and get our parents, you know, to the next level. Um, my dream is that we just have one day a whole portfolio of them. So if you all have YouTube videos of your readings or anything, please feel free to share them with me, and I can put those on Black Parent Connect um, in your section um, Wonderful. after today. Well, thank you, Joan, for having having me on. And I'm, I, I can speak, I probably can speak for Dexter. It's been a, a great opportunity for us to, to reach out to your audience and to share our creation. Yes, thank you so much. Okay, you all have a great evening, and we'll be in contact. Okay. Thank you so much. Good night. Bye-bye.